invite you to grab your Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter 14. One of the things that Melissa, my wife, does is she helps to coordinate the sermon material as we're going through this Bible in a year timeline with some of the children's teaching, and she keeps telling me, you've got to slow down. You're going way too fast. I said, I can't. It can't be a Bible in three years sermon series. Um, although there's many church traditions that do that. They read through the scriptures um, in a three-year cycle. That, that's a somewhat comfortable pace, and it's been a church tradition throughout the, the centuries. But we're doing it in a year, and it's really fast. And uh, so as we read through these stories, sometimes I forget what I need to connect with the previous story. I'm going to try to do that today. We're still kind of in well-known territory for many of us. So some of those connections may not be as necessary for everyone, but um, but if you're here today and you're not as familiar with the Bible storyline, then um, I'm going to try my best. And if something is confusing, I would love for you to come up after, afterward and say, hey, I didn't get this. I missed out on this detail. So please um, feel free to, to stop me and, and help, help me kind of connect some dots for you. Uh, We're going to read Exodus 14, verses 5 through 30. Uh, The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. God calls Moses to lead them out of slavery. God uses plagues, and he uses Pharaoh as a key figure to reveal God's power. His powerful hand. God wants there to be no mistake that the Israelites leaving Egypt as free people, that is not through just happenstance circumstances. It's God's powerful hand at work. And we are picking up on the parting of the Red Sea, and that's chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them. They previously said, go ahead, you can go worship God out in the wilderness, just come back. Of course, the Israelites had no intention of coming back. Here, Pharaoh is changing his mind. And he said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready, and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi. Ha'iroth, opposite Baal-Zaphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching against them. They were terrified. 
and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? That's kind of revisionist history because actually they were crying out to the Lord and they're suffering in Egypt. They did not want to stay there. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the desert. Well, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all of his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of the Israelite army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved moved from in front and stood behind them. Why? So that God could be between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the drove the, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horses and chariots and horsemen, followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it. That's how confused they were. They were fleeing towards the water. And the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on the left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. 
So today we're, we're talking about the story. It, it is one of the most important stories from the Old Testament for, for two reasons. Uh, one, because really the story is about what God does. Like human people, people, God's people are a part of the story, but really this is God at work. This is God doing God's thing. Very God-focused story. And another reason why it's um, so important is because it serves for us as an example or as a sign of what God has been doing, what God is doing today, and what God will continue to do for his people. In other words, it is central to our main storyline. We're talking about the storyline of the Bible, and we keep saying it is our story. Well, this this, this story, the, the, the going through the Red Sea, if you had to pick out a summary story of what God is doing in the Bible, in the Bible storyline, this is it. If you were to sum up this story from Exodus in just a few words, you'll notice this is a, this is a, a summary of the Bible storyline. It's this, God delivers his people from slavery. It's interesting, when, when God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, that's another really important story. At Mount Sinai, God is giving the Israelites um, Ten Commandments because they're, they're free people, right? They're no longer slaves. God's going to show them how to live with one another and using their freedom. And it's interesting how God introduces himself to the Israelites, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he gives that first great command, you shall have no other gods before me. God does not introduce himself in, I'm the God of the, the, who sent those ten plagues. <laughs> he didn't say, I'm the God who parted those wa- the waters of the Red Sea. That's not how God introduced himself. I am the God who led you out of slavery, out of Egypt. God delivers from slavery. And um, as, we, as we look through this story, I want to point out, I want to point out, um, I want to point out how this is a pattern for other very important stories that we see in the Bible. Um, and I like to think of this as just a big rescue. This is not a small rescue story in the Bible. This is a big, momentous Rescue story in the Bible. I'm going to point out three critical parts of a Bible rescue story. Not every rescue story in the Bible has these three elements, but the big ones do. Okay? So, three critical parts. I want you to write these down because we're going to look through a few stories and see how we see these parts in them. So, one, there is a period of chaos or slavery. So, as the Egyptians, as the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, it's this chaotic period for them. They're slaves. Um, when we look through the Bible, um, we see these moments where there's slavery or there's just kind of a chaotic period. This environment when life is not free to be what God created it to be. That's a period of chaos. Okay, so we have a period of chaos or slavery. Second thing, we have a miraculous act with water. God chooses as a part of this uh, rescue story motif 
chooses to use water. Hmm. And we see in this Red Sea story, there's the water, right? The Red Sea. And three, we see new life happening afterwards. Something better emerges for God's people, a new freedom. And if you were to ask the ancient Israelites about what their faith as as a people of God, we follow the one true God. Well, what's your faith about? Tell us, ancient Israelites. They might answer something like this. Well, we Israelites once were slaves, but God delivered us from that slavery by leading us through the waters of the Red Sea, and he gave us new life by bringing us to the promised land. And isn't it interesting that that is a parallel with how a Christian might describe his or her faith? What's your faith all about, Christian? Well, I once was a slave. Might not have looked exactly like how the Israelites were slaves. I once was a slave, slave to fear, slave to sin. But, and we'll talk about this, but God rescued me through an act of water. And now I have this new life in Christ. So let's talk about a few other times in the Bible where we see this pattern. Um, In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And as we talked about this Genesis 1 story a few weeks ago, said that the words formless and empty and darkness, these were words that were used to describe chaos. If we were to look at the ancient Hebrew, those words were associated with with chaos. And the Spirit of the Lord hovered, it says. And the, the, the word for hovered there was the word for brooding, like a mother bird would brood over, hover over, her nest with the eggs in the nest, hovering protectively, just waiting to give life to those little hatchlings coming out of those eggs. That's the Spirit of God hovering over what? Hovering over the waters and and brought about the life, new life of creation. So we see that period of caste slavery, mighty act with water, New life, the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Fast forward a few chapters. Humanity increasingly becomes wicked after the fall of Adam and Eve. The Bible gives a statement about how intense the wickedness and the evilness in, that, in, in, in the world have become. Um, and I want you to think about living, you know, if you were... You were just kind of an outside observer of what was going on, what it would have been like, because the, in Genesis chapter 6, um, the statement that is made from the Bible is that every inclination of the human heart was evil all the time. Every inclination, evil all the time. Imagine what life would have been like if you were just kind of you know, open the door to someone's living room and full of people and every inclination of their heart was evil all the time. You would see chaos, right? You would, I mean, it would have been, you know, you would, you would see horrible things being done in society then, right? So, appeared chaos. And then God did something with 
water, right? Genesis 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters, what, there's a big flood, right? The waters receded. So look what the big, there's a period of intense chaos. The flood waters, and then God sent a mighty wind. Same Hebrew word for wind is the same word for spirit. God sent his spirit, this wind. And the waters subsided and there was new life. So we see it again. Back to Exodus 14. There was chaos of slavery. There was the chaos of the ten plagues. You know, as, as scholars looked at the ten plagues, they they've made this observation that the ten plagues in in some way is like an undoing of creation. It's like creation in reverse. There was chaos. Um, There was water turning to blood in the Nile River. Now think about all the fish in the Nile River. Remember Genesis 1, God tells the fish in the seas, I want you to team. I want you to multiply fish. I want there to be fish everywhere. Well, now there's fish in the Nile River, and then the water turns to blood. Well, what do you think happened to all those fish when the water turned to blood? You'd have a bunch of unteeming fish. They'd all be dead. This undoing of creation through the the plagues. The very beginning of creation, God says, Let there be light, and there is light in the darkness. So the ninth plague brought about Intense darkness, the light reverted back to darkness. So this, this uncreation, just chaos. And then God does this mighty act through the waters of the Red Sea, and now they're, the Israelites are experiencing new life as God leads them to the promised land. Um, don't miss out on verse 21 in Exodus chapter 14. All that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, ruah, same word as for God's spirit, and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. So God's moving through the waters to bring about new life. Said that the storyline of the Bible is our story. So God rescues us from slavery. By the way, Thousands of years after this happens, the Apostle Paul says something very similar describing the life of a Christian. Look at Romans chapter 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We're being rescued from slavery because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And this implies that at some point, every person on the planet was a slave, a slave to sin, but then God does something. You can be crucified with Christ. And that sounds like death, doesn't it? Being crucified with Christ. But what's the third part of a big rescue story in the Bible? It's it's new life. And being crucified with Christ actually leads to new life. And there is a sign of this amazing rescue for a Christian being 
rescued from slavery to sin, being crucified with Christ, and then receiving new life. There is a sign of this. It's a sign that involves water. Let's look at how Paul explains this sign. Still in Romans chapter 6, just a verse, a few verses before what we just read. Paul writes, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized with Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's the sign of being crucified with Christ? Baptism. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. So God gives us this sign of baptism. Baptism is a sign of our freedom from sin. Baptism is a sign, this great sign of transition from slavery to, to new life, to being free. But, of course, water baptism, that's just a sign, right? When I'm up here, baptizing someone with sprinkling water or immersing with water. The water is just a sign of something that God is doing through his spirit. See, God's spirit works with the water as a sign to show us, I am freeing you from your slavery to sin. I'm giving you new life. You see how this Exodus story is our story? Now, this may seem a little spiritual. And we kind of get it. Oh, yeah, this is our story. Red Sea, parting, waters, slavery, new life. Um, what does it really mean to be a slave to sin? Let's see if we can maybe get this a little more concrete or feel a little more concrete. In our life. What does it mean to be a slave to sin? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul gives us a, a pretty good description of it. He writes in, in Romans chapter 7, um, he writes, well, this is like what it's like to be a slave to sin. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry that out. I want to do good, but I can't do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And maybe that's a little bit what it's like to, to be a slave to sin, where you know, I want to do what's right, but I just I can't seem to do it. And the stuff that I, I don't want to do, I'm like, oh, please don't do that again. And you do it again. You do it again. And I want to ask you if you've ever felt like that. And I know the answer to that. And the answer is yes, because we've all felt like that. When was the last time you felt like that? That's a better question. Last week? Yesterday? I mean, that, that happens. Uh, there's a 19th century pastor uh, whose name was William Shedd. W.G.T. Shedd. And he talked about this kind of feeling of being a slave to sin. And this is what he wrote about sin. Sin is the suicidal action of the human will. See, God intended the human will, uh, God intended your will to, to move you to do good. To will you to follow him. To will you to be a blessing to others. To will you to, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
God has given you this human will to, to, to do wonderful things. Sin is the action of that will that destroys your will's power to do what is right. And, um, and what I think Shed essentially meant is that the, the more we sin, the easier it is to sin. And there's several ways that might happen. For example, um, we can become desensitized to sin. We do it enough, and then it becomes kind of common and every, every day for us, and we're like, well, it's not too bad, right? So we can become desensitized to sin. Or the short-term pleasure of sin can wear off, and we're like, well, we need more and more and more. The law of diminishing returns. We need, we need to, you know, that, that pleasure, well, now it's not as pleasurable. I need more of it. So that's another way that the more we sin, the more we can, can do it. Um, or we can feel powerless. We can sin and then feel, well, that was, that was entirely too easy. I guess I'm no good at living, you know, according to God's ways. I'm just going to give up. I don't have it in me. And Paul writes that the wages of sin is death. And so as we sin, I mean, something inside of us is dying. And William Shedd says, well, it's the suicidal death of your human will. What's the solution? If that's, you know, Paul describes that experience of his. We've all experienced it. What's, what does God give to us to break out of that, to become free. Well, the answer is not this. Well, just get your act together, buddy. That's not the answer. To beat up on yourself, that's not the answer. The solution is to know that this Exodus story, it is your story. And to, to know if you are a Christian, your Exodus has already happened. That's really important. This is not something that God will do for you in the future. God, your Exodus story, if you're a Christian, has already happened. In Romans chapter 8, verse 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He doesn't say that Christ will one day set you free, but Christ has already set you free from the law of sin, that law of sin that compels you to sin more. Now, you may not always feel like that. So I want to mention a few things that this Exodus story, parting the Red Sea and rescue, what this Exodus story tells us, what our Exodus story tells us. One, I think it tells us to choose a better storyline as individuals. As, as Christians, as people of God, choose a better storyline. Um, remember what the Israelites said when they saw the Egyptians closing in from behind them. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt, Moses? Why did you lead us out of here, Moses? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians here? The Israelites wanted to go back into slavery. They had two stories to choose from. Story of slavery or story of free men and women. There is a storyline our culture tries to feed to us. 
That's a false storyline, and we've got to resist that and choose a better storyline. So what does our culture try to tell us is our storyline? Think about that for a moment. How about this? If we aren't comfortable and prosperous, we're doing something wrong. That's part of culture's storyline for us. If we're not growing in prosperity, we're doing something wrong. We took a wrong turn somewhere. We didn't study hard enough in school. Didn't get it right to the right degree. We're not doing dog-eat-dog enough. Um, how about this? If we aren't growing our possessions or our power, we're doing something wrong. If we aren't making gains in our sex appeal, we are doing something wrong. I think what our culture tries to do to us is try to make us the center of our own story. And, and whenever that happens, you've, we've, we've chosen the wrong story. Um, you know, when, I talked to students just a little bit. When I, was, when I was a student, when I was in senior high, that became my storyline. I, I became the center of my story. Doesn't that seem so easy? Like, of course I'm the center of my story, right? That, that seems so natural to put yourself the center of your own story. And as a student, as a teenager, that, here's, here's what I thought so often. As I'm the center of my story, I'm thinking, everyone else around here is getting dates except for me. I must be doing something wrong. Whenever you are the center of your own story, the conclusion ultimately gets to, I must be doing something wrong. I'm not enough, not doing enough. I don't have enough in me. And listen, what I learned being the center of my own story is I make a very lackluster center figure. And whenever we become the center of our own story, we're always going to be lackluster at some point. May not, may not be every moment that we're a lackluster lead figure in the story, but sooner or later you get to be the lackluster main figure of the story. And God wants to give us a different storyline, not, not one where we're the lackluster main figure, but that we're, a, that we're a, a, a supporting character that is just amazing. That's God's storyline. Don't be the lackluster central figure. Be the supporting cast member that is amazing. When you make yourself the center of the story, hopefully I don't repeat what I've just been saying, and everything else is about serving yourself or proving something to yourself. Let me tell you, that actually is the reduction of yourself. It's kind of counterintuitive. But Jesus does say things like, whoever of you wants to be the greatest must be a servant to all. Whenever we try to make ourselves the key figure of our story, we will be lackluster, and it is a reduction of ourself. And God says, ah, don't do that. Let me give you a better story. So God invites us to imagine a much greater storyline for us. We were made for a bigger storyline than it being just about ourselves. 
Uh, I got to tell you, on Thursday, this past Thursday, when uh, when I overheard the news that Roe versus Wade was overturned, I was in Dallas. I was at a Christian education conference, and there's about a thousand attendees at this conference. And uh, the the main speaker room was so packed. Um, I mean, I love people, but I don't love people so much where I'm sitting in a little chair like this and everyone else is around me. I mean, I don't love that. So I'm actually sitting outside in the hallway and I'm listening to it online. I got the online code to the speaker and I'm watching the speaker. I've got my ear, my AirPods in my ears and I'm listening to this online out in the hallway. And there's, you know, there's booths in the hallway. People are walking around the hallway. And I hear the speaker say, isn't it great? We're at this Christian educators conference and we're able to be here together on the day that Roe versus Wade is overturned. And I heard it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to check out my Twitter feed, you know? And I, is this, did I miss something? I see it. I, I, I'm crying. I mean, I'm, I'm crying as I'm in this hallway. And let me tell you why. And, and now, I wasn't really bawling because there's people walking by and I got to hold this in. I thought, why am I crying? Because I caught a glimpse of God's bigger storyline unfolding before me. God fighting for those who can't fight for themselves. God liberating those who can't fight for themselves and giving them new life. And I'm like, gosh, this God, this is the, this is the bigger story that you invite us to be a part of. And I see God moving, and I'm just, I'm just crying. Has this bigger storyline. It can be in your heart. It can capture your heart. And that's what God made you for, to be a part of his storyline. And whenever your story is just about you, it is an inferior story, and you will ultimately be a lackluster main character, just like I was a very lackluster main character of my own storyline. Um, so here, uh, you get it. You get it. Hope you get it. Uh, two, second thing that this Exodus story tells us. Do not allow sin to tell you who you are. Look at verse 30. Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. That's, that's how the story kind of ends. And the Israelites make it through, and they look back, and there's a bunch of dead Egyptians. Like, how many of those Egyptians survived? Zero. They're all dead. And, and that detail is in there not to paint a gruesome picture. I mean, it, that's not the, the main reason it's there, to paint, the, to, to paint a gruesome picture. Um, the, I think the main reason that detail is in there is to say that to the Israelites, the Egyptians really were dead. Their captors were dead to them. Their captors no longer had any power over them. I think that's the key reason that detail is in there. They no longer have, the Egyptians no longer have the power to tell the Israelites, you are really a slave to us. So, remind yourself, 
I'm no longer a slave. You've gone from being pursued by the power of sin to now I am freed from the controlling grasp of sin. It's not that we're freed from sinning. We are freed from the controlling power of sin. The more sin sets in, the more that we tell ourselves we need more power, we need more praise from others, we need more attention. Um, We need more demonstrations of delight from others in us. Like, I I want to know. I, I need to know that someone is delighted in me. And truth be told, if I'm not getting that anywhere, I'm going to be looking for it in one of you. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to look for the praise of men if I'm not getting it anywhere. But I can get praise from somewhere else. Look at Psalm 147. I love the statement from Psalm 147. The Lord delights in those who fear him. The Lord delights. Wow. Who put their hope in his unfailing love. I mean, the God's story says, I delight in you. That's how God wants to relate to you. And if you've never really thought that, that the Lord delights in me. Wow. Tell yourself that. The Lord delights in those who fear him. God says, I delight in you. I love you. Now put your hope in my unfailing love. In other words, when you stand at the Red Sea and there's an army of slave drivers trying to drag you back to Egypt. God has already made a way for your freedom. There's a a story of a hymn writer, Frances Havergal, probably the most famous of her hymns, I think, was Take My Life and Let It Be, Take My Life and Let It Be. And she used to have an exploding temper, and it made her a slave. And when she would, she would explode at someone, she would repent to God, God, I'm so, you know, help me to, what, what do I do? And she, next thing she knows, she'd lose her temper again. And it was tearing her apart, and she cried out to the Lord, am I always going to be like this? What does Moses say to the Israelites? The Egyptians whom you have seen today will see, you will see no more forever. She heard God reassure her. Your captive, your captor, your captor, you will not see again. Satan will not be able to drag you back into slavery to this anger an explosive temper. She heard God reassure her of that. And she asked, Lord, could it be forever? And she heard in her heart the Lord say, yes. No more forever. Her sister writes that that was a key moment in her life, that after that, after that moment, she did not see that explosive temper in in her sister again. She had that moment with the Lord where the Lord reminded her, I have already fought for you. I have gained you victory. That is a reality that we can experience today. Um, It may 
come in different ways. It may. There may be different struggles associated with it. I I understand that. But each Christian can experience freedom from a sin that tries to keep that person in slavery to that sin. That That is a promise. Faith is saying, Lord Jesus, I know you love me, and I know that you have freed me. So last thing the story tells us is that Jesus has fought for you. God, what did, what did God, what did the Spirit of God do? The Spirit of God got in the middle of the Egyptians and the Israelites. I mean, that's just the ultimate hero moment, right? I mean, think about the setting. There's the Red Sea. There's the pillar of fire and cloud that led the Israelites to the Red Sea. And the Egyptians are coming up from behind. And God said, oh, now it's time for me to get right in between you. And let me tell you, that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He got in between you and the sin that was seeking to destroy you and keep you in slavery to that sin. And instead, Jesus said, lay it on me. But you're not going to touch my people. And he allowed your sin and my sin to inflict all of its damage upon him. And he died, and then he rose. And he says, that new life, that is mine, I now give to You know, one thing that I didn't mention too much in my sermon, but I want to mention it, and we'll, we'll end with this, and we'll say a prayer, is the, 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 the powerful image that God has given us, water. And I mentioned that baptism is a sign of being freed from slavery and given new life. I want to suggest to you that in, 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 in you living, realizing this new life that God says is yours, to remember your baptism. One, if you haven't been baptized and you are a believer in Jesus Christ as a son of God, if you have not been baptized, then it's time to be baptized because God gives us that symbol. That's a powerful symbol. And his spirit works through that symbol to reveal his grace to us. But if you have been baptized, to remember your baptism. And I want you to remember your baptism every day. Like you're, you're in the shower, you're taking a bath. Remember that God has worked through water in my life in the past to bring freedom from slavery to me, and, to new, and he's given me new life. And as you go through your struggles with, with sin, and we're about to pray for whatever sin you may feel like is trying to hold on to you. You just tell yourself, you're getting clean. You're taking a shower. You're, you're swimming in the pool. Whatever it is, whatever water moment you're having saying, I'm going to remember my baptism. And the water that God used in my past has given me my true identity. I am a child of God. No longer slaves. Have the power of the Holy Spirit of the the risen Lord in my life, living in me. So let's pray. 
And I invite you to um, just think of the story. And thinking, I want you to think of these dead Egyptians that uh, Exodus 14 depicts. They're all lying dead on the other on the other side, and the Israelites are they're moved. They've moved beyond them. And those dead Egyptians have no power over those Israelites anymore. What in your life? I mean, the Bible says that anything that is not done in faith is sin. So what is that sin? What is that area in your life where, where it's not, where, where faith is not energizing your heart and, and maybe you're experiencing fear, worry, dread, or maybe there's just this very noticeable sin that you know is present in your life and you want to be free from it. Maybe it's just the, uh, maybe it's just realizing, yeah, I am kind of the, I've made myself this, the very central character of my story and not God. And I'm feeling beaten up every day because I'm reminded I'm a lackluster main figure. And you need to, get free from that. I invite you to bring that before the Lord. And Father God, we thank you that that you've opened up the waters and you've allowed us to pass through. And that sin, that that inferior storyline, it is in our past. It has no power over us. Lord, as we pray to you, we pray that as we, as we bring this, this sin into our minds, that you would now speak to us. It has no power over us. And why, Lord? Because you've rescued us. Why have you rescued us? Because you delight in us. We are your children. I am your child. I invite you to in your own mind and heart and soul to just have that encouraging thought in your, in your mind. I am God's child. God takes delight in me. I am not who my sin says, says that I am. I have a bigger storyline of pointing others to God's promised land, living in God's blessings, knowing the one true God. And I can live as this supporting cast member, guiding people along the way. Lord, will you help us to do that in faithfulness and in eagerness and a willingness to to be a servant to others. Lord, will you give us the delight of living in, in your kingdom, where increasingly, day by day, you bring us closer to our true promised land. Lord, we we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for the freedom that we have in you through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.